0: So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence squared 2. That's notion.com/ squared. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On this episode, Paul Karanagalizia, the journalist and now author, discusses his new book, A Death in Malta. Paul is the son of prominent Maltese journalist Daphna Karanagalizia, who was assassinated in a car bomb on the island in 2017. Joining Paul in conversation is the journalist and historian Anne Applebaum. She's staff writer for The Atlantic and a specialist on foreign affairs and authoritarian regimes. Her books include Twilight of Democracy, Failure of Politics and The Parting of Friends. Let's join Anne Applebaum with more.
1: I'm Anne Applebaum and I'm here with a really remarkable author and writer, uh, Paul Caruana Galizia, who has just written a spectacular book uh, which... Tells the story of the place he grew up, which is the island of Malta, the country of Malta, um, as well as the life of his mother, um, Daphne Caruana glizia who was a um, who, who was a, who was Malta's most famous journalist. She was the first woman columnist. Uh, she was one of the best known people on the island, um, and she was also horribly assassinated in a, a, by a car bomb uh, in 2017. Um, Paul, after her assassination, became a journalist himself, and he has now since won uh, multiple awards. Uh, the book is a moving account of her life, but it also places her life into two important contexts. Uh, one of them is the context of the history of Malta, and the other is the context of the rise of international kleptocracy. Uh, uh, that was her specialty. She wrote about kleptocracy. She wrote about she did. She was an investigative journalist. Uh, she wrote about corruption. And that was also why she was uh, brutally murdered. Um, so I will begin. Welcome, Paul. I'm I'm so glad to have you with me today.
2: Thank you so much, Anne, for that kind introduction. I'm really happy to be here.
1: Um, one of the striking things about your book is that you start with Malta, and it's not a place that most people know well. Um, and people have an idea of it being a kind of vacation island, um, you know, off in the Mediterranean. Um, and you 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 tell a, a darker story uh, of the history of the country, and you use the expression "amoral familism." Could you could you begin by explaining what that is and how it describes the political system uh, of the country?
2: Yes, of course. The idea of the book is to introduce people to my mother, and quite mm-hmm. early on, I realized I I couldn't do that unless I also introduced Malta you know, the country that shaped her um, and, and made her a journalist. And my mother, as a university student, studied anthropology. And um, as part of that course, learned about this idea you mentioned, so that um, some areas have a social structure that, that is sometimes called a moral familism. And you tend to find it where formal state structures are very weak and so the family unit develops in in response to that so the bonds within a family are much stronger um, than the loyalties you might feel to the rule of law to democracy itself so you would you know you would never report a relative to the police and you would think only about the immediate material interests of your own family and, and you would assume other people do the same. And that has really serious implications for, for governance. So in the simplest example I can think of is, if, if you assume no one pays tax, then you, you don't pay tax yourself. And so institutions lose funding, the state becomes even weaker, and the family becomes more important. Um, and my mother, increasingly, especially towards the end of her life, as Malta became more corrupt, Saw it as a, a very useful way of understanding the problems she was reporting on every day.
1: Right, so it's a it's a place where um, kind of state institutions were weak, where clan, family, and almost clan relationships were much more important, um, and where, as you say, as you've written, clearly the rule of law was very weak. Um, one thing that's also striking about the book is you talk about how high expectations were when Malta finally joined the European Union, that that membership of the European Union might somehow fix that problem, um, might make Malta more law-abiding, might make it similar to other European democracies. But I think your mother was disappointed by that.
2: Yes, that's right. And there was something I realized when I was writing it really tragic about the arc of her life, because she was born just two weeks before Malta um, became independent from Britain. Two weeks before it decolonized. It was September 1964. And for most of the 60s, her really early childhood, it looked like Malta might become an independent, prosperous nation. But starting in the 70s, as was the fashion at the time, Malta um, became very socialist, started experimenting with ideas of closing off its economy to become self-sustaining and so on. And so she grew up in that very closed world where you know, you'd only have one brand of chocolate or toothpaste available, all made domestically, one type of shoe you could buy. And so for her, the idea of Europe became very important. The idea of the West, anyway, she called it. And that, that was available to her through British magazines and newspapers. Her parents subscribed, so my maternal grandparents subscribed to. And as she, as she grew up, so late 70s, um, early 80s, the prospect of union membership started seeming like something that might happen one day in Malta. So she spent much of the 80s thinking about it, hoping for it. And again, it was also, you know, part of of what was happening around the world. And in Malta, in the late 80s, we had a really important general election, a kind of, in the book, I call it like Malta's end of history moment, where. You know, the the country had a choice between continuing down this like China -China, pro-China, pro-Libya part, or or turning west towards NATO and European Union. And and the Western side one, but really just by a whisker. And so the accession programme began in the nineties, and my my mother really believed it. You know, it looked like things were changing. And I I remember it. I grew up in the nineties. Suddenly the economy liberalized, people became richer. But then what we didn't realize, and I think my mother didn't realize, is that while the economy was reformed, the forms of governance we had in Malta were never properly reformed since 1964, since the colonization. So Malta ended up with this very globalized economy, but these rickety, you know, 1960s, immediately post-colonial institutions, and that proved to be a real... A really toxic mix,
1: and it was really this mix, and it was the fight against that system that inspired her to become a journalist and led her to this very unusual role, where as I said she became a she wrote a a blog essentially, an online yes. column that became the most read piece of you know source yes. of information on the island
2: yes, that's right and and so when the, when those institutions really started failing. And as is often the case in countries like Malta, journalists become the kind of institution of last resort. And I, it took me a long time to realize something is really wrong because, you know, my mother always reported on corruption, but it was low level bribery, you know, Maltese drug traffickers, bribing Maltese judges. But then almost imperceptibly, she found herself reporting on huge flows of money coming from post-Soviet states, looking for a, a way into the European Union you know, oligarchs buying Maltese passports. Um, and, and it happened so quickly. Again, she, she almost didn't realize herself. And because those institutions couldn't bear those massive strains of money, um, the few kind of non-corrupt civil servants we had began turning to my mother. And if you think about it, the situation's absurd. You know, police officers would you know acquire material and felt unable to do anything with it other than pass it on to my mother who'd report on it and but at the same time that exposed her a great deal and as my brothers and i always said it's it is significant that in the end it was my mother a journalist who was murdered rather than a police officer a magistrate a judge or or a politician
0: That's why over thirty-seven thousand companies have already made the move, and now, by popular demand, Netsuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/squared. That's netsuite.com/squared. Netsuite.com/squared.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the in the in the in the years? I mean, really, it's, it goes on for many years the years before she died, the smear campaign that was run against her. um, I find smear campaigns very interesting, actually, because it's very, they're run in a very similar way in similar countries. So I have a friend who's a Mexican journalist who has, you know, almost also a woman who has very similar descriptions of what happens to her that I found in, in, in your book about your mother, you know, they are caricatures of her, you know, she's a witch, she's old, she's, she's ugly, you know, the, the, you know, they're, they're focused on, um, you know, very, very focused on her being a woman and being weak or being uppity or something like this. Um, and I think it's a pattern that now repeats itself, um, because it's, it's a way of, um, you know, kind of getting rid of or diminishing criticism. Um, you know, if you can make someone into an online hate figure, which it's now of course so easy to do, and if you can do it using government resources, um, yeah that's that's a, that's a way to kind of undermine criticism of you. and that's 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 what happened uh, also to your mother.
2: That is really what happened to a to a degree that became became extreme in the final years of her life. In part, that had a lot to do with the internet. So growing up, It was always an issue growing up, you know, people would call up the house pre-mobile phones and, uh, you know, I'd answer and hear a voice saying, tell that whore of your mother to stop writing this, tell that witch you call a mother to, or people would send stuff in the post. But um, that, you know, purely for technological reasons, that made it feel like less of an issue somehow. But then the internet, it just kind of allowed that form of abuse to be industrialized you know the costs were non-existent people could just send emails write their own blogs you know um but um you are right there was something especially ugly especially misogynistic about the form of abuse so it was always that she was a witch Um it became so oppressive it it affected her physically. You know, she she felt unable to leave the house. And um, and that allowed them to say even more, she's a witch hiding out in her house. We grew up in the countryside, so they called her the Witch of Bidnia, this rural area where we lived. And, and then she started putting on weight because she was always at home, isolated. So they started, you know, calling her fat, fat, lonely, a witch. And it... It was an attempt to undermine her. It was an attempt to completely dehumanize her. And as a campaign of dehumanization, it was so successful that it continued after her murder. So after her murder, a group of Maltese journalists kind of brought to light all this, all this disinformation, all, all this slander. Um, on Facebook, Facebook is, is really the most popular social media platform. in And, you know, people, people were celebrating her murder. They were celebrating the car bombing of, of a journalist on the day it happened and continued to celebrate it, you know, even afterwards. And it, it, it just, I remember thinking Malta is a really tribal partisan place. But it was at that point I realized how bad things are. It wasn't that we simply didn't have a shared understanding of, of reality, of our politics, of what was happening, but that we, we, we didn't even see each other as, as humans. Like, I, I could never, I, n- I never thought we'd get to that point where you would celebrate a, a car bombing of your fellow citizen, of a journalist.
1: But, but that was coming from the government. It was coming from the ruling party of the time, whose, the ruling whose party. corruption she was in co- on, on course to expose.
2: That's right. And the thing about Malta is you have this really good kind of test of how, how coordinated it is or how spontaneous. So my mother wrote in English and um, most of the country speaks Maltese as a first language. Most of the supporters of the ruling party, which is still the ruling party, speak Maltese exclusively. And as my mother once said, they, the supporters and and voters of of this party, are taught to hate me independently of what I write. And it was was later that the government just kind of stopped caring and the prime minister at the time actually assigned an aide. To, to run a campaign of, of harassment against my mother and my father and my brothers. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and, yet, and yet at the same time, sh- she was the most widely read journalist in Malta.
2: Yes, she was. And, and this is the problem they had with her, that they, they, especially when she started her blog, they had very few levers they could pull on. So when, when she wrote exclusively for her paper, The Malta Independent, the government would do things like withhold you know, government advertising revenue, not invite the newspapers, other journalists on government press stores, that kind of thing. But with her blog, um, they just couldn't, right? It, it was her. They had no kind of levers to pull on except attacking her directly. But because of these failings, we were talking about you know, that the police wouldn't investigate crimes and that the a g wouldn't prosecute them. My mother became not just this, the you know the most important source of news um in the country, but almost the only source of news people had nowhere else to go to and you know the flip side of of people seeing um the harassment my mother endured and um, that she would keep going with her work anyway showed sources that she is a journalist they could trust that no matter the pressure brought to bear on her she would report truthfully and fully that she wouldn't be kind of intimidated into giving up sources and and so on but um it it did you know as as she wrote a few months before she was killed when when the plan to to assassinate her had in fact been set in motion she wrote something like you know do your worst you bastards until the only option you have left is to take a contract out on my life and and they did do it because there was nothing else they could do to stop her
1: um after her death there were two things that happened maybe we can talk about both of them I mean, one of them is that you and your brothers um really dedicated yourselves to uh in a way finishing her work you know continuing some of her investigations and um, one of your brothers worked on uh, one in particular, um, also ha- ha- help getting other journalists, including from the Guardian in the UK, um, to you know to interest themselves in some of the material that she dug up and to begin to to knit together some of some of the stories that she'd found. Um, and then the other the other thing that happened was that a kind of mov- popular movement of support for you and what you were doing, as well as in memory of her and her life, um, became a real factor in, in Maltese politics
2: yes so we it's funny because in retrospect it looks like we had a very well planned out campaign but in fact we just we just thought we need to pull on every every lever available to us so the journalism was was one thing we thought of we thought she was a journalist there were stories she hadn't finished working on we can't take them up ourselves let's pass the material on and then we you know Mortai is a small state so very sensitive to international pressure so we went to the european parliament we went to the council of europe and brought you know their pressure to bear down on the country but um the most important like long-term important uh, development of that campaign in my view is the growth of civil society in malta again that was another failed institution so public life in Malta was dominated by either of the two political parties or the Catholic Church, and I mean completely dominated, there were no spontaneous protests, it was either party or church, the paper, the media was controlled by those institutions. But then when there were really key arrests starting in 2019, the country erupted in protest completely. And a number of those protest groups had formed immediately after my mother's assassination, especially a group of women who called themselves Occupy Justice. And, and they set up in 2017 and have been campaigning ever since. But it was that, that burst of protest in 2019 that made me think the country has changed. This is a new feature of, of public life in Malta. and um, It's the development of civil society that is spontaneous. It's not church-led, party-led, and and it looks like it's there to stay. And to bring it back to that amoral familism point, the, the, one, the one kind of essential symptom of a place that can be described in that way is you have no civil society because it's only the family you care about. You don't care about the state, you don't care about the community, it's just your family. And so this kind of Change happened. you know, the change my mother always wrote for, you know, always hoped for, always kind of wanted in her columns. and and it it happened as a result of her assassination. This was a kind of tipping point for the country
1: um you write very um movingly in the book about the um you know the and and it's it's very it's a complicated story, the investigation into who killed her and how she was killed. Um, which isn't finished yet. Um, we, we know we we know some we know some yes. elements of it, but but not others. Maybe we can finish if you can talk a little bit about that and what your hopes are for that, particularly given this civic movement that has grown up that is yes. putting real pressure now on the multiple establishment to find out really what happened and who was responsible and who gave the orders and why.
2: Yes. So okay, so the Broadly speaking, there were three sets of criminal proceedings against the hitmen. Um, so three Maltese men who planted the bomb and detonated it. All three have now pleaded guilty and are serving prison terms. There was a middleman who was pardoned in exchange for evidence um, against the man he says commissioned the murder. That man um, was arrested in 2019, which is what triggered all the protests and he's due to stand trial for the murder sometime next year. There's also, a, um, a trial we expect of three men who supplied the bomb now that's, that, you know, if that doesn't sound complicated enough, we also had a public inquiry and which looked into the broader, um, circumstances of her murder, which my brothers and I campaigned for the campaign was based on an idea we had around the, this, the special rapporteur, the council of Europe assigned to Boris Nemtsov. Boris Nemtsov's murder, uh, to throw, you know, light on the circumstances surrounding the murder. Anyway, that public inquiry finally reported about two years ago and concluded that the state bears responsibility for the murder because corruption got to such a point, it was institutional collapse. So the public inquiry has made a number of recommendations, you know, constitutional reforms to prevent something like this happening again. None of those recommendations have been implemented yet. And um, more crucially, I think, as a test for the country is whether any of the senior politicians who at this point undeniably participated in an attempted cover-up of the murder and who are the subjects of her corruption reporting, whether any of those will be prosecuted. Because to this date, there hasn't been a single prosecution related to those big corruption stories. And I feel that's an important test for the country, as much as as much as much bringing the murder case to a conclusion. The country needs to be able to say that we think corruption is a major problem. It will be prosecuted, and we will bring prosecutions against people who were prime ministers, even.
1: Tell me whether you think this is a, a model or whether there are lessons for others, um, this link between... A kind of movement for transparency, for anti-corruption, uh, and for journalism and for the free press. Um, you know, are, you know, are those forces that can that can help democratize and um, you know and 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 create more more civic, better institutions in other places. I mean, do you think that what's happened in Malta is something that others can learn from?
2: I think so. I think we are unfortunately a kind of a warning. To other countries and you know we are now an example of what happens when you ignore institutional rot when you when you think of rule of law issues as some abstract you know distant problems and we are an example of what happens when you let a populist government um, kind of free reign to run to run a country as as it is fit and it, it's funny. I, Muscat was elected in twenty thirteen, so you know, three years before before Brexit, Trump, all the really like signal moments in in recent political history. And I thought, how funny that if we are looking at Malta as an early indicator, it was all there in a grain of sand. You know, Muscat is is shoots up to power on these impossible promises, rules with a really strong executive, parliament unable to check him, the institutions unable to check him, huge flows of foreign money, Azerbaijan, Russia, China. And what we're left with is is just the free press attempting to fight it back.
1: I mean, it's, it's actually very similar. I mean, you think of there was a similar situation in Slovakia. Um, you know, it's not unlike the Navalny movement in Russia, uh, you know, if you if you think about the anti-corruption movements in Ukraine leading up to 2014, um, yes. you know you, you do you do see a pattern where one of the ways to fight autocratic populism and state capture is a kind of journalism plus civil society um, plus you know good lawyers um, plus people who are interested yes. in applying and making real the rule of law.
2: Yes, I think so. Sorry. So the summary version is that for a long time, Malta thought real change had to come through politics. But I think what we've seen in Malta is it can and probably should come through civil society and maybe through the courts, right? Through public interest litigation, which is what we've been doing. And for a long time in Malta, we just ignored those tools for change and they turned out to be the most powerful and the most fast-acting, much better, certainly, than the parliamentary process.
1: So thank you, Paul. Thanks for a fascinating conversation. Um, The book is excellent. It is really worth your time. It is very easy to read, very well written. It's called Death in Malta, An Assassination and a Family's Quest for Justice, and it's available in your local bookstores. Uh, I'm Anne Applebaum, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared.
0: Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by myself, Connor Boyle. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue too, featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com.